Hey there, I'm Eric, a.k.a. Revolver. And I'm Sean. And we're the Vertiguys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three. Sandman, Hellblazer, Creature. And today we're looking at Sandman issues two through four. All right. Let's jump right in. Do we want to recap a little bit what happened last time? It's oh, pretty simple, but we can do it. Yeah, so some fucking assholes trapped Morpheus in an orb, and that orb was trapped inside a circle, and they didn't know what to do with him because their plan fucking sucked. <laughs> so they just sort of left him there for 70 years and nobody could sleep. Yeah, Morpheus, a.k.a. Dream, the king of dreams, the prince of stories, the god of imagination, was captured by some arcanists who were trying to get his sister death, and they probably had an equally fucking terrible plan for what would happen if they had gotten her. Death is his sister? Oh, man, I fucking spoiled that shit. I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh, man, I was picturing Death as a brother. Wow, this is going to be really interesting. They held him for 70 years. He got out. It's not true that nobody could sleep, but some people had real trouble dreaming during that time. And I was lying. Back and trying to fix his life. Yeah, he lost a bunch of his shit because those assholes took it. Yeah, and we'll get directly into that. They're going to talk a bunch about that in this issue. But that's all you really need to know. He got captured. It was 70 years. He's back. Yeah. So that brings us to Sandman issue the second, Imperfect Hosts. Written by Neil Gaiman with art by Sam Keith and Mike Dringenberg. Indeed. We've got a uh, cover by Dave McKeon here. It depicts the three-in-one flanked by an owl with some witchy stuff on the shelves. What are the three-in-one? The Hecate. What are they? Maiden Mother Crone. We'll see them in just a few minutes. There's some ladies, basically. So there's these three ladies. <laughs> on the cover, we got three ladies. And an owl. So on page one, we have these two brothers. And one of them is trying to give the other a gift. These are Cain and Abel, and they're hanging out at the House of Mystery. Abel's really nervous to open this gift because he thinks it's going to explode. Yeah, uh, apparently Cain has given him reason to be suspicious by murdering him a few times in the past. Yeah, kills him all the time. Apparently it doesn't take, but he doesn't like it. If you didn't know, Cain and Abel are host characters from DC Horror Anthology comics from the late 60s and 70s. Cain is House of Mystery, and Abel is House of Secrets. And Abel was created by Bullet Bob Haney. <laughs> <laughs> they talk about... Bob Haney a lot on a podcast that we both really enjoy called Tighten Up the Defense. Right. Speaking of House of Secrets, Swamp Thing actually had his first appearance in House of Secrets 92. That's the famous one with the Bernie Wrightson drawing of Abby Holland on the cover, in which she is modeled by Louise Simonson. Oh, very interesting stuff. Well, these characters were brand new to me. But that's okay, because you get a real feel for their relationship really fast. Yeah. Kane is trying to convince Abel to open the present, but they are interrupted by a knock at the door. And the first panel of page two here, you see Kane walking or running, and it just looks so fucking weird. He's got this really strange gait, where he's got he's got he's like hunched over with his legs stuck way out. Yeah, it's just sort of a cartoony running yeah. pose. But I, I deeply enjoyed it. <laughs> All right. They debate whether something big and nasty might be trying to get into the house. And indeed it is. It's Kane's gargoyle Gregory. And he's caught something. But it's, it's their somebody big and nasty. And 
He's he's holding a rather undignified looking dream who looks like he, you know, does not notice the indignity. And promptly passes out. Abel immediately recognizes him as the Prince of Stories. Right. When Dream awakens, he is greeted by Abel, who introduces himself. I'm Abel, my lord, from the um, first story, the uh, victim. He sure is. Dream was on his way to his castle in the Dreaming. He later refers to these two houses as old way stations on the frontiers of Nightmare. But uh, he had spent most of his energy last issue trapping Alex Burgess, the son of the sorcerer who conjured him, in a Nightmare of Eternal Waking, which is why he collapsed on his ass. Yeah, the Eternal Waking was totally boss awesome and completely worth it, if you ask me. Do you think it was justified? Yeah, that guy was an asshole. Okay. <laughs> he did threaten to torture him a little bit. Yeah, you shouldn't do that. Incidentally, they're chatting here in the House of Mystery, and Abel is speaking to Morpheus through a painting on the wall, through which he later steps to enter the scene. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. The conversation that they're having at that moment is that because Dream has lost all his power, he needs something that he put a bit of himself into. And it turns out that he has in the past given letters of commission to both Cain and Abel, so letters that he do. apparently gave at the time that he created them. Oh, okay. So those will do, and he manages to absorb a little power from them. Yeah, this is actually an important bit of foreshadowing. He can, he can absorb something that he created and regain its power. Is that a trick he's going to use a lot? It's a trick he's going to use pretty soon. Okay. Meanwhile, at Arkham Asylum. Yeah, so this is definitely in the DC universe at this point. Yeah. Um, you know, we got Arkham Asylum, and there's a woman here, Ethel D. And previously known as Ethel Cripps. Should I know that name? Yeah, she was in the first issue. She's Roderick Burgess's mistress. Oh, Ethel D. is Ethel Cripps. Interesting. Now 90 right. years old, she's here at Arkham Asylum to see her son, threatening them with lawyers if they don't let her see him. And her son is the legendary John D., who is a thing outside of the DC universe. Yeah, uh, I don't know that that's intended to... I, I, I think he's obviously not intended to be the historical character, but that's obviously where he got the name. Yes, but he is intended to be Justice League bad guy Dr. Destiny. Right, so this is a guy who would haunt the Justice League in their dreams and sometimes sculpt dreams to try to take over the world. He's a, he's a bad dude. I know him mainly from the... 90s as fuck and awesome Justice League America storyline Destiny's Hand, in which he sort of transports many members of the Justice League into an alternate world where the Justice League is all fascist and rules the world with an iron fist. Oh, is that is that the one where Bloodwind turned out to be the Martian Manhunter? Bloodwind was the Martian Manhunter he's like, all he's along. Like, he's like the good Martian Manhunter, and he's the only one of the Justice League who hasn't been replaced by the fascist Justice League? I think he's one of the one that, ones that gets dreamed into this dimension. Oh, okay. From outside. Okay. But, yeah. Basically, it's just a 90s as fuck storyline, and... Kind of good, kind of bad, really fun to read. So he also has a pretty significant role in Serious House on Serious Earth by Grant Morrison, in which Batman pushes his wheelchair down a flight of stairs. Not nice. Not cool. Well, Batman kills a bunch of people in that story. <laughs> yeah, he seems to forget how to fight non-lethally. Yeah, he also stabs 
Killer Croc with a spear, I think. Dr. Destiny also appears in an episode of the Justice League animated series, the DCAU series, played by William Atherton, and he's so creepy. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he's a creepy guy. Although, in here in this particular issue of Sandman, it's really his mother who's much more creepy than he is. Yeah, he's in a pretty weakened state. He's described as quite debilitated. He's gray-skinned, wide-eyed, nearly bald, naked, and with crooked teeth. Yeah, and we got a great panel of him here. Yeah, this is a, a good a good build-up and reveal sequence here. And since his last defeat by the Justice League, we are told he's unable to sleep or dream. As he shouts, they took my dreams away from me! Yeah. It's not like the Justice League to screw with a villain's mind like that. <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> so, yeah, I choose not to believe him. You don't think that's what happened? Uh, well, I, I guess we'll see. All right, back at the House of Mystery, Cain and Abel bid goodbye to Morpheus. I really love this panel here where... Abel is falling over himself to give an appropriately proper goodbye to the King of Dreams. And Cain says, Goodbye, sire! <laughs> yeah, Cain, whilst drinking what appears to be an old-fashioned Coca-Cola with a straw. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty cool. And as soon as he's gone, Cain says, Now, open your present. Right. Um, spoiler, there turns out to be nothing sinister about this present whatsoever, so I don't know why he has such malicious glee at trying to get him to open it all the time. Yeah, I think Kane likes to control the room, and he likes to be thought of as scary. He's described in a later issue, I think, as trying to sound like Vincent Price. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, uh, meanwhile, Morpheus is making his way to the Gates of Horn and Ivory, the Gates of the Dreaming. Incidentally, in this episode, the Dreaming is referred to as the Dream Time. Pretty soon, they're going to consistently be calling it the Dreaming. They also call it the Dream World. Okay. A, a lot in this issue. But yeah, he makes his way across, and he comes to the ruins of his castle. This is one of the better panels. Yeah, it's actually framed by the Gates of Horn and Ivory, or in any event, by some kind of oval panel frame here, which looks really cool, and which I... It reminded me of the oval window at Witchcross, but also it's the same shape as the crystal cell that he was held in in the first episode. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the artists really like these kind of ovals. We got one earlier in this very issue, in fact, the sort of ovular shape of the of the front door. Oh, of yeah. House of Mystery. That's a good call. The so, castle is a ruin. The dreaming is a desolate wasteland, and the only person left is Morpheus' librarian, Lucian. Yeah, and he gives Morpheus some much-needed exposition here and tells him that it was a slow process of the castle deteriorating and the whole wings would disappear at once overnight. And most of the people who worked there left. My books became bound volumes of blank paper. The next day, the whole library was gone. I never found it again. Without Morpheus to sustain it, the whole dreaming has basically faded away. Yeah, and this is intercut with a scene of Abel finally opens his present, and it is a super cute little baby gargoyle. Oh, And, yeah, and, and, and Sam Keith is so good at drawing, like, things that are really weird and eerie, and things that are really cute, and sometimes both at once. Grotesque cute. Yeah. 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 Lucian tells Morpheus what's been happening with a number of the denizens of the Dreaming. Some of these are 
kind of incidental characters, but some of them will be pretty important. The Raven Woman has decayed badly. She lives only in nightmares. This is a character that we're going to meet in a little while, called Eve. And he mentions that Brute and Glob vanished two score years ago. We're going to see those guys again. Okay. Uh, meanwhile, at the House of Mystery, so Abel opens this present, and it's this little gargoyle, and he says he wants to call him Irving, and King gets disproportionately angry at this. Gargoyle names are serious business, man. Apparently they all gotta be named with a G. And he, he kills Abel. It drives him into such a rage that he kills Abel. Again. We get a panel here of Kane's shadow falling over Abel, followed by a panel of the new gargoyle, which I shall not call Irving for my own safety. <laughs> Confusedly going, Ark! While blood splashes on the wall behind him. Yep. Oh wow! So that's that's Morpheus's palace in all of its splendor. Yeah, he's got he's actually conjured a little statuette of his palace in its heyday in his hand, which he then crushes and then turns to sand that that disperses. So he explains to Lucian that he's not able to rebuild the palace or the dreaming without his tools. He's invested too much of his power in. But he apparently will be able to summon the three in one. But in order to do so. He needs to do one of my favorite things that he does, which is steal stuff from other people's dreams. Yeah, this is cool. He gets some snakes and some honey and a gallows from the head of a Japanese movie buff. We see him using his power to steal things from dreams again, and I don't remember him using it much more after this. And he says that a black she-lamb is a pretty difficult thing to find, but one dances in the dreams of a child in Adelaide, Australia. And then Dream summons the Hecate, the three in one. They are three women, one young and beautiful, one plump and matronly, and one a frightful old witch. Right. The maiden, the mother, and the crone. And just th like on Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> well, where's the other four? I, I, I don't know. All right. And this is really cool. The maiden, the mother, and the crone are all very distinctively drawn in a very sort of cartoony slash horror comic way, but they shift identities each panel. Yeah, and, and this, uh, they spend most of us an entire page just coming into view, sort of teleporting in, and that is some of the, some of the best art in this issue, and it's another one of these elaborately framed panels. Yeah, two pages later, there's a great device that's used to call attention to the fact that they're shifting appearances constantly as the crone begins to eat a little demon creature that she's caught. The second panel has it sticking out of the mother's mouth, and the third panel has the maiden burping. <laughs> yep. So they explain that they will give Dream only what they are bound by law to give him, which is one answer to one question each. Three questions in all, which is enough to track down the three tools. So he asks the maiden where his pouch of sand is, and crossover, she reveals that it is in the possession, or was, to the last of her knowledge, in the possession of an Englishman named John Constantine. And I'm going to try to say Constantine. All right. <laughs> There's a nice little cameo appearance of Constantine here, looking into the camera, looking all cool. He then asks the mother what happened to his helm, and we see Rothford... Ruthven Sykes. Ruthven Sykes. <laughs> that was his name. Oh, man. Making a deal with some demon or another. 
Uh, but she won't say which demon, because that would be a second question. Yeah, he traded the helm for the Amulet of Protection, as we saw in the last issue. So the helm is long gone from the mortal plane. Dream then asks the crone what happened to his stone, his dream stone, his ruby moonstone. And uh, another crossover. It looks like Batman and Green Lantern took it off of some guy. Yeah, and specifically, they took it off of Dr. Destiny. John D. He is told to ask the League of Justice what has happened to his ruby. Um, incidentally, I was wondering if this ruby scheme where they captured the ruby from Dr. D represented a specific issue. I think it might be a reference to Justice League of America Annual Number 1. But what I actually found out when I was researching this question is, this comic is the first post-crisis appearance of Dr. Destiny, and the first time he had a real name, John D. Oh, interesting. Yeah, the, the whole thing of his name being John D. really feels Neil Gaiman to me. Hmm. So, faced with three potential targets, Dream says, well, there's some demons, and there's some superheroes, or I could go after the one who's just a man. So he decides that he'll start with Constantine. Yeah, he's not strong enough to face hell, and he's really unfamiliar with the, the bracingly modern concept of the Justice League, but he decides to go after Constantine. And the Hecate depart with a taunt. You don't thank the fates, Dreamkin. We haven't helped you. I guess that means he won't get his stuff back. Yeah, it's going to be a weird series. <laughs> Meanwhile, back at the houses of mystery and secrets, Abel's dead in the backyard. But he gets better. Yep, and he sort of slowly pulls himself up to the house, and the pain of dragging himself to the house still feels better than the cold of death. And he's reunited with little Irving, who he decides to call Goldie. Yeah, he calls the gargoyle Goldie after a friend of his who went away. Apparently the friend is actually that in House of Secrets he would constantly be telling his stories to an imaginary friend named Goldie. Oh, I see. That's interesting. And he sits here talking to his gargoyle and wishing for a better relationship with his brother. Yeah, this is this is really kind of sadly beautiful. It's clear that, like, it's not the pain of being murdered that really bothers him. It's his... It's his... The fact that he loves his brother and, and, uh, and they really have a very bad relationship. Yeah, the pain of being betrayed sticks worse than the pain of being beaten to death with a fire poker or whatever it happens to be this time. And he says, It's a story of two brothers, and they uh, they loved each other very much, and they were always nice to each other, nice and kind and brotherly, and the elder brother would never hurt the younger, never. And they lived in the same house, and they were, they were very happy. I'm sorry, I wasn't, I'm not crying. I'm really not crying. It's only blood, little brother. Only blood. So, that brings us to Sandman number three. Dream a little dream of me, with special guest star John Constantine. As before, this is written by Neil Gaiman, with art by Sam Keith and Mike, Mike Dringenberg. Yep. And as all good stories do, we begin with some nipples. <laughs> <laughs> These are not the nipples that you want to see. <laughs> They're not the nipples you're looking we for. We open up... <laughs> We open up a pretty unpleasant scene here. It's a normal-looking suburban house, but the woman within is in bad shape, sick from inactivity. And she's sort of been using Dream's sand as a drug. So yeah. it's not just inactivity that she's sick from. She's also kind of, like, 
she's got that, you know, drugged out appearance. Yeah, she's forcing herself to count to a hundred before doing it again, or drawing sand from the pouch and slipping away into dreams. Meanwhile, or later, in John Constantine's tiny flat. Yeah, so Sam Keith draws a really good John Constantine. Yeah, I was wondering about this flat here. By the time of Dangerous Habits, he definitely has a new apartment. He talks about the circumstances under which he lost the flat that he had in the first issue. Mm-hmm. I wondered if, this, if that had already happened, because this, this flat looks much smaller and shabbier than the one he had in Hellblazer number one. Yeah, and we're actually jumping a little bit ahead here for the sake of our, you know, alternating between series. This issue, it's not going to spoil anything from Hellblazer much, I don't think, mm-hmm. but it does take place between issues 13 and 14 of okay. John Constantine Hellblazer. The radio wakes John up, and it's playing Dream a Little Dream of Me. He's just had another demon nightmare the way he always does. He changes the channel, and now it's Mr. Sandman. John suspects something's up. Have you ever had one of those days where something seems to be trying to tell you somebody? (laughs) So he goes out for a spot of breakfast. A cheeseburger. (laughs) The cornerstone of any nutritious breakfast. (laughs) He has a jukebox on the table, so he tries to put on... Heard it through the grapevine, and he mentions that he used to sing it with his band Mucus Membrane. <laughs> I always thought Mucus Membrane was supposed to be some kind of, like, Satan metal. <laughs> but apparently they also did standards. <laughs> yeah, and he encounters this 247-year-old woman. Yeah, when he, when he tries to put the song on the jukebox, another song about dreams pops out instead. Fail. And then a woman bangs on his diner window. Now you listen to me, John Constantine, you little prick. This time she definitely says T. Yeah, it's spelled out so we know she calls him John Constantine. Yeah, this is a character named Mad Hetty. She tells John that the Sandman has returned. He doesn't believe there is a Sandman. But he knows that her boast of being 247 years old is true, so he decides to check it out. Yeah, and his plan for checking it out is apparently to avoid it for as long as he can. (laughs) Well, you know, I wondered about that when I read this issue, and then I started reading more Hellblazer, and that's basically his problem-solving attitude. He's a real procrastinator, that John Constantine. Meanwhile, some dude breaks into the addict lady's house. Yeah, this is a a hobbyist thief. He's actually a well-off investment counselor who's doing this for sport. He breaks into this house... And suddenly he finds himself in dreams. He's having sex. He's driving a Porsche. He's Jesus dying for our sins. And then he's Superman. Superman, the last son of a dead planet. This is definitely the DCU. Superman's a real guy and everybody knows who he is and where he comes from. Yep. But he is caught by an unseen figure with a flashlight. Meanwhile, Constantine keeps meaning to get to that dream stuff, but doesn't. (laughs) And on the third day... Morpheus finally comes to him. Morpheus walks right into the flat. Note here that Morpheus has a huge head. Yeah, I guess he does. It's I don't, sort of stylized. Yeah, I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's a mistake. I think he's definitely something other than human, and it's his, his exaggerated proportions in this scene are trying to sell that. So, so you think it's actually like on his his uh, official DC Comics abilities sheet? Giant fucking head. No, I think he's inherently... Big a... old noodle. <laughs> I think he's like Galactus. Different people see him. Superdome. <laughs> he's 
a shapeshifter. He can shift it. <laughs> yeah, and he does. Yeah, that's right. And Constantine uh, snarks at Morpheus immediately, as is his wont to do, but then he seems to think better of it. From his own series, we know how rare it is for someone to be powerful enough that Constantine shuts his trap. Yeah, and Constantine's dialogue and Dream's dialogue, they just they have this sort of amazing clash where, yeah. you know, Constantine is very verbal and, and Dream is very stoic. Yeah. So they decide to go to... Chaz's storage unit, where John thinks the pouch has ended up, but hey, he doesn't want to. But he does want to take Morpheus on public transit with his ever-shifting magical cloak that shows the faces of dreamers in its in its hem. So he turns it into a dark trench coat. Yep, and he still has the Robert Smith there. Yeah. So yeah, this is the same Chaz I think from uh, our our Hellblazer issues that we covered. That's right. One of John's oldest friends. For some reason. <laughs> yes, the much-abused Chaz. They enter a storage unit belonging to Mr. F.W. Chandler, that's Chaz, and search it for two hours without finding the pouch. Note here that John looks at a bunch of his files, one of which is labeled The Plant Elemental. Oh, interesting. So that'd be Swamp Thing. Yeah. John finds a photograph of himself with an old girlfriend, and suddenly he realizes where the pouch must be. Yep. He uh, was living with this lady, and he had to bomb off to Alaska for some kind of adventure. And while he was gone, she stole and sold his stereo, his television set, and his collection of Silver Surfer comic books. <laughs> I missed that this time. Yeah, so she basically converted anything that she could find in the apartment into a fix. All his junk to money, and all his money to junk. Yeah. Stupid bitch. Sometimes I still miss her. Thanks, Constantine. And by junk, we mean heroin. Yeah. Heroin seems to be a recurring bad habit among people who know John Constantine. Yeah, but in this case, that's not really her problem. That's not her current drug of choice. Nope. They arrive at Rachel's dad's place in a neighborhood called the Brambles. Morpheus senses it's dangerous, so John makes Chaz wait outside. Your missus hates me as it is. Let's not give her a reason to, eh? So they come to the front door, and Dream peers eerily through it in this great panel. Yeah, and then the door is locked, so he just opens it anyway. He just wills it unlocked. John remembers that Rachel was always interested in the pouch. She'd ask me, what's the point of having something magic if you don't use it? I knew the answer, but I knew she'd never understand. Hey, you've done another uh, Constantine voice. <laughs> another new Constantine accent. <laughs> I try for her listeners. <laughs> Sandman invites Constantine to wait outside, but Constantine says he wants to see it through because Rachel was once the girl of his dreams. Yeah. They stumble upon the unconscious thief. He's being eaten by dreams, Morpheus says. Yeah, he's not in a good spot. But he's not as bad off as the next person they find. Who seems to be entirely made of goo on the wall while still alive. And Constantine accidentally touches the goo and finds himself in a dream of falling until Morpheus snaps him out of it. Constantine says, A dream. It was only a dream. And Morpheus replies, It was never only a dream. The stuff on the walls, Morpheus thinks, is Rachel's father. Yeah. Just to mention real quick, this, uh, this page of Constantine falling is is done in a, a really great kind of stylized 
cartoony way that really makes you feel the kind of like panic and the momentum. Yeah, he's sort of distorting as he falls as well. Right. Uh, the next room, they find the walls covered with leering green faces, which Morpheus identifies as a rogue dreams. He chastises them, and they recognize their master and back down. And then they finally come to the door of Rachel's bedroom. And as they turn the knob and go inside, the, the whole world kind of slants. I mean, I don't think from their perspective, but that's the way that we see it. And even the dialogue is slanted yeah. on the last part of this page. Yeah, they do some nice stuff with panels in this comic. Rachel is a wreck. Naked, atrophied, covered with bed sores, her hair falling out. And she is singing, All I Have to Do is Dream. And as John gets a look at her, he says, Jesus, Rachel, Jesus. And the uh, Polaroid picture that he found before makes a reappearance, which I, to, I think very good effect. Yeah, I thought that was a really cool. Dream is happy. He's found his bag of sand. He was ready to go, but John insists, you can't leave her like this. Morpheus says she'll die painfully in the absence of the pouch, but he doesn't care. Yeah, he's, he's very, like, clinical and indifferent about it. She will die soon, painfully, I would imagine. Yeah, so Morpheus is the protagonist of this series, but it's a theme that we're going to come to over and over, that he's not a hero. Right. And especially in situations where he thinks he's been slighted, he is pretty vindictive. Yeah, but at Constantine's urging, he decides to go ahead and put Rachel out of her misery. Yeah, he throws a bit of sand over her, and suddenly she's healthy and beautiful, and she walks off into the sunset with John. And he says, she died peacefully. She died happy. Morpheus teleports away, but then suddenly John Constantine goes, hang on, wait a minute! And he teleports back in mid-teleport. <laughs> Yeah, that looks really funny. And he says he doesn't like to owe anybody favors, but he does need some help with something. John says he's had nightmares every night since Newcastle. The last ten years. Bad ones, most nights, and I wondered if you could... And Dream seemingly takes them away. He seems to agree to help. And John's feeling a bit better as he seems to decide to walk all the way back to London. Yeah, what happened to Chaz? I guess he took off. It was dangerous. Oh, yeah, that's right. Or maybe he's just walking to the cab. I don't know. But uh, John walks off into the night singing Mr. Sandman to himself. Yeah. Are you, are you going to sing it? No. You want to sing it? No. Okay. Sorry, listeners. <laughs> I'm sure you can find audio of this song. I don't think you can find audio of John singing it, but I don't think you can find audio of anybody singing it quite as well as we could if we so chose. I don't think you could find audio of anybody singing it as badly as I could sing it if I tried to sing it as John Constantine. <laughs> okay, so that brings us to Sandman number four, A Hope in Hell, by Neil Gaiman, Sam Keith, and Mike Dringenberg. Morpheus is thinking about what he has to do next. He plays with his newly recovered sand as he remembers the fall of Lucifer at the dawn of time, an event he was present for. It's time to go talk with the devil about his missing helm, and he doesn't have high hopes. Yeah. We learned, um, that, uh, we learned that Morpheus was bluffing when he bluffing when he cowed the rogue dreams at Rachel's house last issue. And with his diminished powers, the demons of hell pose a real threat to him. Yep, it's a good thing he's uh, good at talking his way out of trouble. Yeah. So he decides that he's got to go talk to the Morning Star. I didn't know that was a word for Satan, but... Oh, yeah. 
Sometimes he's called that, Lucifer Morningstar. Incidentally, we're going to learn later later on that like a being's power is at its height in the heart of his own domain, so going into Lucifer's domain, Dream is always going to be vulnerable. I see. Whereas in, in the dream time, or the dreaming, they might be more vulnerable to his shit. Yeah. Gotcha. So Morpheus goes to hell, and at the gates of hell, he finds a delightfully bizarre-looking gong with an eyeball on it. Oh, yeah. This is a really... Hell is just drawn in incredible detail throughout this issue. And here we have a gate covered with deformed and mutilated humans. Yeah, this is some Sam Keithy goodness right here. An impaled head on the gate calls for the Guardian, a demon named Squatterbloat, who has an axe for a hand. Yeah. <laughs> I thought this looked very... Very Todd McFarlane at first. You know what it reminded me of, actually, the design of this particular demon? Mm -hmm. Was um, Oddworld. Okay. Yeah, in the, in the way that, like, in Oddworld, creatures' role and function was often a part of their design. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Squatterbloat is a lesser demon, which means he is bound to speak in rhyme, and he's taunting Morpheus about the loss of his helm and a ruby. And he calls him a clown... Which, judging by his reaction, Morpheus doesn't doesn't like too much. No, <laughs> he's not having any of it. He grabs Squatter Bloat by his face tendrils and throws him away. <laughs> yeah, he also punches him right in the fucking head. Yeah, this is a really. Oh, I see. That's the grab. I thought that was a punch right in the fucking. Yeah, face. This is this is really slapstick as we get this panel of time lapse Squatter Bloat flying backwards, rolling backwards across the ground and slapping into the gong. We are clearly meant to think that this is a good thing, that he has been grabbed and thrown. Well, uh, it, has a, it has some sort of some Flintstones-style action. <laughs> yeah. So a new demon comes to greet Morpheus, and he's somewhat more polite. This is Etrigan. Crossover, it's Etrigan. Etrigan is a classic DC character created by Jack Kirby in The Demon Number 1, 1972. Yep. You often see him crossover with Batman. Yeah, he's seen in Batman a lot, but he's had his own comic book off and on. I don't think he has one currently in Rebirth. I don't really know what, what became of him post-Flashpoint or anything. But This is kind of a scarier Etrigan than you might be used to seeing. He's got long rows of razor-sharp fangs covered with drool, but the Jack Kirby design is still in force. <laughs> yeah, he has, uh, he has this sort of funky red and yellow outfit with a blue cape and these funny bracelets. Yeah, exactly. His bright primary colors don't change, even though Hell is drawn really bleak and grim otherwise. Yeah, the, the, the landscape of, of Hell is a sort of, it's like this red sky and, and gray ground. And as they make their way across the cliffside, they encounter some prisoners of Hell. Yeah, Etrigan agrees to escort Morpheus to the Lord of Hell, and as they travel, they have a conversation about the, the changes that have come to Hell, particularly in its hierarchy. Yeah. So we see he passes one of his worshippers, and he appears to this worshipper in a different form. This is one of the first times that we see that Morpheus appears to different people in different forms as they expect. To this, to this person, he appears as a black man, albeit still with the distant stars for eyes. And he's, he is addressed by the name Kaikul. Yeah, and the guy says, 
Kaikul, Dreamlord, I hoped one day you would come to me. Free me, my love, please. He replies, I greet you, Nada. It pains me to see you like this. Yeah, this is a woman named Nada, who is a former lover of the Dream King, consigned here at his order. Kaikul, free me, Lord. You ordered me confined here. Your forgiveness can free me. Don't you love me? It has been 10,000 years, Nada. Yes, I still love you. But I have not yet forgiven you. This is a really essential Morpheus moment. In that he is being kind of a dick. I mean, Morpheus cuts a, a broad romantic figure. He likes to brood, but his sort of enjoyment of his own profound sorrow is inherently selfish. Right? He... He's pained by having damned his lover to hell 10,000 years ago, but she's been suffering worse than guilt. Yeah. Yeah, he says it pains him to see her like this, but he hasn't forgiven her yet. So they make their way to the new city. Yeah, they arrive at the Palace of Lucifer. Well, first of all, again, Sam Keith, drawn palace. It looks just totally, like, dreamlike, nightmare-like. It's got vomiting babies' heads and pentagrams and weird eggs and is just and totally more bizarre. More big over windows. <laughs> and totally bizarre and awesome. Yeah, it looks a lot like, honestly, it looks a lot like the Dream King's castle that we saw last issue, but in a totally bitch-in-hell form instead. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of the same, sort of different. And again, Dream is once again thinking... You know, that it's a risk to face Lucifer at the center of his power, especially without his tools. Yep. Cream is brought before Lucifer. Lucifer is unearthly beautiful, a black-winged angel in a long white robe with wild red-blonde hair. He looks more than a little like David Bowie. You know what I actually thought he looked like was he looks just like Lucifer from The Wicked and the Divine. Yeah. Yeah, I, I get that. The Immaculate White, certainly. Although Lucifer from The Wicked and Divine doesn't have the wings. And is more more female, although they're both androgynous. This is an yeah. androgynous male. Lucy from Wicked and Divine is an androgynous female. But, but Lucy still, had very... Really, Lucy had really neat hair, right? Yes, that's right. Okay. She kind of looked like David Bowie, too, but like a different era David yes. Bowie. Yes, yes. <laughs> So at this point, this is where we finally do find out that, or Morpheus does find out, that hell is no longer Lucifer's kingdom alone. It is now ruled by a triumvirate. And right on cue, the co-monarchs Beelzebub and Azazel appear. And this made me think, I wonder if this triumvirate of the Lords of Hell is the same as the three Lords of Hell from Dangerous Habits. I was wondering about that myself. I feel like they're not really the same characters. These are Lucifer, Beelzebub, and Azazel, and those are referred to, I believe, as the first, second, and third of the Fallen. Right, yeah. And I know that the first of the Fallen's official first appearance is Hellblazer number 42, which this would have been before that. Yeah, when I was reading about this issue, when I was researching about this issue, I looked up the first, and apparently... He is much less powerful than Lucifer. I read on a wiki somewhere that he's much less powerful and significant than Lucifer is. So this is like a slightly different hell than the one we get in, in Hellblazer. We, even though they're theoretically the same universe, we could assume there are multiple hells, or we could just sort of treat them as not sharing a universe right now. 
Yeah, whatever headcanon works for you, listeners, Ted, to get through these two overlapping but conflicting stories. Yeah, Hell is ruled by a triumvirate in either case, but it's a different triumvirate. During their conversation here, Lucifer mentions three of Dream's family, Destiny, Death, and Despair. Yeah, uh, we also see Beelzebub, who will be familiar from issue number one. Yeah, and incidentally, the design of the two co-monarchs is totally nuts. Beelzebub is a giant fly head attached to a pair of humanoid legs that stand on the ceiling. <laughs> yeah, and Azazel is sort of just a, a clump of eyeballs. He looks a bit like a, like a beholder from Dungeons & Dragons, yeah. only with a ton of eyes instead of just being one big eye. Yeah, Lucifer mentions that Hell recently went to war with Heaven, which resulted in a civil war in Hell, which resulted in turn in this current situation of shared rule between the three of them. I also really like the dialogue between Morpheus and Lucifer, the differing levels of politeness and rudeness. Lucifer is rather polite right now because he has the advantage, whereas Dream's politeness extends only to a point. He's always aware of his station as one of the endless. He doesn't suffer affronts, so he slips into rudeness as he demands his helmet back. Yeah, that's really interesting. But he doesn't know which of the many demons of hell has it. It's one of Beelzebub's subordinates, and he asks him to name the demon who has it, but there are over a million demons. Yeah, so on the next page, we get an amazing two-page spread of a whole rogues gallery slash legion of nuts-looking demons. Yeah. Lucifer summons all of the demons to meet on the plains of hell, and suddenly, instead of in the palace, he, Morpheus, and the other two monarchs are standing on a tiny promontory overlooking this vast array of weird-ass-looking demons. Yeah, this... we've got, we've got like, little imps, and we've got monsters, and we've got some that kind of almost look like superheroes. This is, incidentally, one of the panels that really benefited from the recolor. Oh, yeah, that's right. You you mentioned that in the old version of the colors, crowd scenes were often drawn all one color. Yeah, so these demons were all kind of shades of pink or yellow, which is a, a much more garish effect, maybe more of a horror effect, but here they all have a unique detailed coloration. Yeah, and it plays up the cartoonishness, but the cartoonishness works so well for this page. Yeah. Okay, so in order to identify which one of them has his helm which he has by now confirmed is made from a fallen foe. Yeah, I crafted it myself from the bones of a dead god, he says at the top of this page. Yep, he spreads a bunch of his sand over the whole crowd, and the sand seeks out the right one. And this is a guy with a great character design. He has two mouths and some, like, stereotypical 90s sunglasses. <laughs> Some William Gibson sunglasses. Yeah, and he's bright pink, and... And he's wearing torn rags of women's lingerie. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's sort of dressed really fetishy. This is a character named Karanzan, a subordinate of Beelzebub. Awesome. Awesome. Lucifer asks, and Karanzan admits that he has the helmet. He says he obtained it in trade from a mortal. And since he owns it fairly, under the laws of hell, Morpheus will have to fight him to get it back. So is this a retcon, or is Karanzan and Beelzebub lying? So I looked into this because he's got a sort of sound in his voice, and I wondered if, if I had gotten it wrong, if it was Beelzebub who had 
uh, excuse me, if it was Karanzum who had obtained the helmet in issue one. But Beelzebub has this distinctive speech bubble style, and we did see that in the first issue. So I think at this point, my guess is that Karanzum is like covering for Beelzebub since he's one of his subordinates. He's actually got the helmet, but he's not the one who directly obtained it. Right. So, he's not going to give it back without a challenge, so Morpheus goes ahead and challenges him, and he chooses reality as the battlefield. Yeah, Morpheus isn't really sure he's got the strength, but he forges ahead with the challenge anyway. Yeah, and this is a good, this is luckily for him, a sort of challenge that he can win with his wits. Yeah. Although, I, I guess we don't know how much of his magic power it takes to assume each of these forms. Yeah, so the site of their battle is a comedy club packed with eager demons in attendance, and Karamson is now wearing a fancy suit. Yeah, the first panel on this page where he's, uh, we see him, like, tucked up and talking into the microphone is, again, like, more great art and really shows off what a great character design Karamson has. Yeah, and Morpheus thinks to himself, the Hellfire Club. It feels like a bad joke, and like everything else in hell, it is deadly serious. So they go into their challenge in which they each will take different forms, and they each have to top the other's last form. Yeah, so the, the reality duel basically amounts to a kid's game of, no, I have the bigger gun. Because <laughs> they each have to imagine something that could beat the form that the last guy just took. Yeah, maybe a little bit more poetic than that. Oh, sure, yeah. It starts with Karanzin declaring that he is the dire wolf. Morpheus yeah. retorts with a hunter, wolf stabbing. And his narration notes that he's both here and in the field as the mountain hunter. Karanzin counters by becoming a horsefly, horse-stinging, hunter-throwing. Morpheus becomes a spider, eating the fly. Karanzin becomes a snake, spider-devouring, poison-toothed. And Dream becomes an ox to stamp the snake. Karanzin becomes an anthrax, butcher bacterium, warm life destroying. There's a shift in the game now, as Morpheus, instead of becoming something that can destroy an anthrax, becomes something that can withstand it, a world, something able to survive the deaths of many lesser creatures. Karanzin is eager to finish the game at this point and says, I am a Nova, all exploding, planet cremating. And as Karanzin becomes a Nova, Morpheus becomes the universe, all-encompassing. And Karanzin becomes anti-life, the beast of judgment, the dark at the end of everything, the end of the universes, gods, worlds, of everything. And he's sort of, uh, he's sort of tipped his hand here, because we know he's not going to be able to top that. Yeah, he smugly asks what Morpheus will become. And calmly, having led Karanzin to his trap, Morpheus says, I am hope. Yeah, and he, like, at this point he's like wearing a suit, and he sort of looks like he belongs on stage there in the comedy club. Yeah, this is a really cool panel, I think. In the last three pages as they've been doing their battle, we've seen each of the forms that they've taken. But here we're just in the comedy club. Yeah. It's just a large panel with Morpheus's words dead center. It's a panel that emphasizes the turn of language that tells you that the words within are damn cool. This is the comic writer's equivalent of a mic drop. <laughs> Yeah, and Karanzin is just staring with both of his mouths agape. Yeah, he's unable to conceive of something that can retort against hope. And suddenly, they are back on the plains of hell, the players on the promontory overlooking. And Lucifer's not happy that Karanzin lost that duel. No. He says, take this pathetic creature from our sight, demonstrate to him our displeasure. And he's wrapped up in 
barbed wire or thorns or something of that nature. Yeah, Lucifer summons agony and ecstasy to drag Karanzan off for his punishments. But Lucifer does not want to let Dream out of hell and doesn't see any reason why he should when he's surrounded by every demon in existence. I thank you, Morpheus says. The kings of hell are honorable. But Lucifer's got another card to play. Honorable? You joke, surely. Look around you, Morpheus. The million lords of hell stand arrayed about you. Tell us why we should let you leave. This is in a really effective pullback, too, as the... As the panels go down this page and they zoom far out to show him surrounded completely by demons. Yeah. Uh, he replies, you say I have no power. Perhaps you speak truly. But you say that dreams have no power here? Tell me, Lucifer Morningstar. Ask yourselves, all of you, what power would hell have if those here imprisoned were not able to dream of heaven? And the demons silently part as Morpheus walks out of hell. And this layout is just so epic. First he's standing high addressing them all, and then he's making his way through the, the, the vast hordes. Yeah, with the left side of the page overshadowed by the silhouette of Lucifer, as he says, One day, my brothers, one day I shall destroy him. And that brings us to the epilogue on the last page of the issue. John D's mother has died, and the staff at Arkham Asylum is bringing him the baylet from Berserk. <laughs> I'm sorry, that worked on me. Yeah, they hand him a trinket that she left him, and it is the protective amulet she stole from Ruthven Sykes all those years ago in issue number one. Yeah, this issue, incidentally, is the first appearance of DC's Lucifer. He would go on to have his own long-running Vertigo series, and then later he would have a TV series on NBC. Which was just basically a procedural. Yeah. It's apparently still going on. <laughs> Unlike the, uh, the Hellblazer show, that one lasted. Well, that was, that was really fun. We had two good stories there. We had our first crossover. Didn't think it was going to happen this soon. But yeah, Hellblazer and uh, Sandman have already crossed over once. Yeah, definitely establishing the Vertigo brand. Or it wasn't Vertigo yet, but what some people call the Burgerverse, after editor Karen Burger. So what did you think of those issues? I really enjoyed those issues. They had some good narrative momentum to them, and they all had a sort of pathos to them as well. Mm -hmm. You know, we got, to, we got to see the stories of a lot of interesting side characters. Uh, we got to see some good foreshadowing across the three issues with, uh, with this Dr. Destiny stuff. Yeah. I think Imperfect Hosts is a little bit utilitarian. It definitely moves this series forward in a lot of important ways. Sets up some important plot stuff. It's probably a lot more fun if you have a, an existing familiarity with Cain and Abel. Well, I mean, it's a good... That, that's sort of the most whimsical of the three of these issues. True. And the most... The most dreamy. Yeah. The Constantine one is fun. They make the wise decision to let Constantine narrate it, which, you know, if, if he's going to appear, you should always let him do. Yeah, and in a way, that's like the first example of something we're going to see over and over again in this series, in which somebody encounters Morpheus as seen from their perspective to give us a view on an aspect of the character. He's a character that I think would be very difficult to... No, Morpheus is a character who I think it'd be very difficult to have as a viewpoint character all the time. Yeah. Yeah, in, in, a, in a way, this whole series is long-form character writing, and every story 
is a point of view on his character. When I first read that issue, it felt kind of almost pointless. I don't want to say pointless. Feudal, maybe, is better. In that they obtain the pouch, but they aren't really able to do anything except witness what's happened to Rachel. Having more context on Constantine, I think that's actually kind of par for the course with his adventures. It's very much like what happened to Gary Lester in the first two issues of the Hellblazer ongoing series. Yeah, having the context that he's more of an anti-hero and a lot of the time problems like this are beyond his ability to do much of anything about or to win a victory that's not that's not Pyrrhic in some way. Yeah, a very compromised victory. Yeah, that issue makes a lot more sense with the context of having read some Hellblazer. And then issue four is just mad brilliant. <laughs> yeah, uh, issue four you can really sort of, uh, not, that, not that it's poorly written, mm-hmm. but you can really kind of sense the spaces where Neil Gaiman was like, all right, I'm going to leave this to my artist to make this awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's true. The art really elevates it. But I think, too, there's... That feels like a moment where the series is coming into itself, where it's establishing itself. I have seen the moment in which Morpheus escapes from hell on lists of great comic book moments. And I think it's definitely a moment where uh, where the main character's grasp of language is allowed to win the day. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 just as Morpheus having you know, having first dealt with the more mundane problem of John Constantine now feels prepared to go into hell, maybe Sandman, the comic book, having gotten its footing a little bit, feels comfortable with this issue taking us into a a sort of broader cosmology. Yeah, and I think this is an issue where you can feel it deliberately setting for itself an iconic moment. Yeah, and... And it, it really pays off. I mean, the challenge between Morpheus and the demon is, you know, it's it's a big, like, this is going to be epic, big look at me moment, and it plays perfectly. Very cool. Well, I'm glad you like those issues. Yeah, if the series keeps up like this, I'm having a lot of fun with it. Awesome. So next week, we're back to John Constantine with Hellblazer issues three through five. All right, looking forward to it. See you all next week. Thanks for listening.